Thessalonians. I invite you to open your Bible there with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This morning we'll be in verses 1 through 12. You probably haven't heard by now, but there's going to be an eclipse tomorrow. Yeah, thank you. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. Of course we have heard that there is an eclipse tomorrow because that's all anybody seems to have been talking about for the past few weeks. There's been a great deal of curiosity, a great deal of confusion, speculation. I read uh, on Facebook the other day, somebody said, wouldn't it be neat that when everybody is staring up into the sky tomorrow, Jesus comes? And I said, yeah, that would be, that would be amazing. It would be wonderful. But apparently the topic of the second coming of Christ has always been somewhat confusing to believers. As Paul is dealing with that subject today, he, he dealt with that in the letter, first letter to the Thessalonians, trying to uh, clarify some issues. And then he finds himself in the second letter, again, dealing with some more confusion. So if you find yourself confused regarding end times doctrine, you're not alone. You're part of the number of believers for the last 2,000 years that have been wrestling with these things. But it's, in, it's important for us to remember we have a sure word from God. And let's don't get so worked up and caught up in what we don't understand. And let's focus on what we do understand. And what Paul spells out for us today plainly is that we can find encouragement in his revealed plan for the end times. It's important for us to remember, God has given us a revealed word. God has a plan. He is in control. And for that, we can and should find encouragement. Let me invite you to stand if you're able this morning in, reading, in, uh, in reverence for the reading of God's holy word. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, Paul writes these following words under the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false 
in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Let's pray together. Father, we pause at this time as we enter into the study of your word and just, first of all, God, thank you that you have spoken to us. This is by your grace. You did not have to give us a revealed word, but you chose to do so. For that, we are eternally grateful. Father, we also confess, as we come to your word, there are parts in there we struggle to understand, and perhaps this is one of those. And Lord, we could spend all day speculating and, and guessing about the things we don't understand, but Lord, I pray today that you would remind us that you're in control, you've got a plan, that all of creation is reaching a culmination where Jesus Christ establishes his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, remind us of that essential truth. And Lord, encourage us as we deal with tribulation today, persecution today, encourage us as we are reminded of your end times program that leads to the return of your son Jesus. It is in his name we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we looked at last week, Paul was writing to a church that was facing persecution. They were, they were suffering because of their faith, their commitment to Jesus. And in order to encourage that church, he pointed them towards the return of Christ. And in doing so, he understood there were some things about the second coming of Jesus that they were confused about. Some things that they were discouraged about. And that's the same for us today. As we think about the second coming of Jesus and the end of the world as we know it, there are things about that that confuse us and discourage us. And so as Paul was writing to that church to encourage them, let God speak to us today. Also a message of encouragement as we think about the end times. First of all, do not be distressed about the end. Do not be distressed about the end. We as Christians instead can and should be confident as we reflect on God's plan and the culmination of it in the return of Christ. Paul begins, first of all, with his request of the church in verse 1. He says, Now we request you, we beseech you. In other words, Paul is saying, pay attention. This is very urgent. This is something important that I want you and need you to grasp. And Paul says, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Grammatically speaking, these two events are linked as one and the same. In other words, when Christ returns, we will be gathered to him. Paul spoke about earlier in chapter 1 what happens when Christ returns. Verse 7 and following, he says, To relieve those who are afflicted, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in the saints on that day. So Paul is saying when Christ returns, he's dealing out retribution to those who have rejected him. 
but also He will be rapturing, He will be bringing together His church. There will be a judgment to those who have rejected Him and there will be a gathering together of those who love His truth. There will be a rescue for His people. And Paul says the, the, the term here, our gathering together to Him. It's the Greek word that we get the term synagogue from the place where the Jews would gather together and have their worship service, a, a gathering together. There's another place in Scripture where this term is used. It's in Hebrews 10.25, where the writer says, Do not forsake the assembling together. Do not forsake the gathering together as some are known to do. So as we, as, as Christians, are commanded to gather together what we're doing here right now, this is appropriate, this is good, this is commanded God says, do not forsake this. This is important. It's important for you. It's important for those you gather with. See, corporate worship is not always about what you get out of it. It's also about what you bring to it. And how you coming to worship God collectively with these brothers and sisters, that communicates something to them, and it communicates something to this world. So in other words, we do not forsake gathering together now because gathering together now, like we're doing at this moment, gathering together now reminds us that we will be gathered together on that day. And not only us, but all of those believers who have come to love and accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's request of the church is, in verse 2, Paul's reassurance to the church, his reassurance. He says, and that you not be quickly shaken from your composure. In other words, unsettled in your mind or your thinking. Paul's saying, don't so quickly lose your mind about this. Think on this. Don't be shaken as if a, a boat that has come loose from the dock and it's just tossed back and forth by the waves and the winds. Paul says, don't, don't let that happen with your thinking. Or to be disturbed, to be frightened, to be alarmed by something. And what's Paul warning them about being shaken or disturbed by? He says, either by a spirit or a prophecy or a message, a, a word, a letter, as if from us. So Paul's saying as a church, they didn't have to just worry about the persecution from the outside. They also had to worry about false doctrine on the inside. That Satan's going to look for every opportunity he can to harass and, and destroy a fellowship of believers. And he will use persecution from those on the outside, but he will also find ways to creep inside the fellowship and try to disturb what God is doing. And Paul is, 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 is reminding them and warning them of this He's reassuring them. He says, we're not going to give you a, a message, a prophecy, a, a letter, a word to the effect of this, that the day of the Lord has come. The coming, the timing of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying that they were somehow thrown off by this. That there were some that were saying either the day of the Lord, it already happened. And y'all missed it. You can see how that would be troubling. Or perhaps some were saying that the day of the Lord is here, it's right now. And he hasn't gathered you. So you need to be worried about that. Paul says, be reassured. 
Don't let those come in and, and, and change your thinking and change your mindset. Don't let them unsettle you. He's reassuring them. They don't need to be distressed about what God is doing and God's plans. Lane shared a story with me yesterday, and I hope she don't mind me sharing this with you all. She said she went to watermelon, uh, went to watermelon, to Walmart and bought a watermelon <laughs> the other day. And uh, said, you know, obviously with her back brace, it's something that she's not going to be able to pick up and carry, and so she pays for it, and on the way out to the car, she says, lo and behold, who do I see? Jeremy Atkinson. So God sends a, a, a hero at just the right moment. You see, and sometimes we, we can find ourselves worrying about something when God is already busy at work taking care of it on the other end. And we just need to trust in Him. God's got this. So Paul was writing that church as, as they were, were worried and, and they were getting frantic and, and being disturbed by those coming and, and teaching and saying these false things. Paul says, don't worry about this. God has a program. God has a plan. Let God's plan unfold before you. Do not be distressed about the end. But also Paul reminds them, do not be deceived about the end. Don't be deceived. We need to focus on the main theme. The main theme of this passage is things get really bad, but in the end, Jesus wins. That's what Paul was reminding that church. Things are going to get bad. It's going to look like things are out of control. But in the end, Jesus wins. And don't be deceived by this. When we, we study the end times, and we study especially the book of Revelation and, and other Jewish apocalyptic writings of that day, we, we find ourselves confused by a lot of the symbolism that's used. Because that writing is very different than anything we're used to in our culture today. And we read that and we're just blown away by that and, and we just don't quite understand what is he trying to say here. And we get caught up in the minutia of the details. And we've got to be careful not to do that. Remember to focus and interpret what's being written. Find the main theme that the author is trying to accomplish. And the whole point of the book of Revelation is just that. Things are going to get bad, but in the end, God wins. So therefore, don't worry about it. Stay faithful. Don't bail on God. Stay faithful. In the end, He wins. And if you understand that, end times doctrine makes a lot more sense. You don't get caught up in these things. But one of the things that confuses a lot of people and one of the, the more confusing characters in God's plan for the end times is this, this character known as the Antichrist. Paul doesn't use the term Antichrist here. The only person who does in, in the Scripture is John in 1 John. He talks about the Antichrist is coming. He also says, in fact, many Antichrists have already came. The word Antichrist means anti-against Jesus, against Christ. Anything dealing with Jesus or anything that Jesus stands for, the Antichrist opposes it. And so Paul reminds the readers and reminds us that the Antichrist is coming, a central figure who seems to take control of the world. But in reality, he is just a pawn in the plan that God himself is unfolding. 
Paul reminds that church not to be deceived about the end because he says, first of all, the apostasy will take place before the Antichrist. Apostasy. Not, not apostle. It kind of looks the same. Apostasy. Not talking about noodles or macaroni. You know, pasta. Apostasy. The word means to fall away or to leave, to desert. In the original Greek culture, it meant a soldier that would abandon his post. He was an apostate. He, he bailed on his fellow soldiers. Apostasy. Those who leave the faith. A falling away. Paul says in verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you. That's a command. Don't be deceived by anyone in any way. It will not come. The day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. There will be a mass exodus of so-called Christians from the established church. There will be those who claim to be Christians but are proven really to be unchristian, seen in the fact that they are leaving the faith. A mass exodus of so-called believers from God's church. Paul says that will happen first. Part of God's program. Don't be freaked out when we see that. We look around our culture today and we see the state of many churches and denominations in our nation and we see them abandoning the, the truthfulness and the authority of the Word of God and, and, and we see as a result their doctrines and their beliefs following suit, just abandoning Scripture. It's unsettling. But we need not be surprised because Scripture says things like that will happen before the end apostasy before the Antichrist. And then he goes on verse 3 to say the appearing of the Antichrist is next. Verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, the man without law, the man without God's moral guidance and God's moral code, the man who is against everything God stands for. We might say this might be a, a personification of Satan himself. But Paul reminds them that as this man is revealed, this man is unveiled, unmasked, as we begin to see who he is for who he really is, Paul refers to him as the son of destruction, reminds that church of his destiny. He is one who is doomed. He comes on the scene after a mass exodus from the faith. He shows up. He's revealed to who he really is. But in the end, he's doomed. Right off the bat, the very beginning of, of, his, of his work on earth, he's done for. We should never forget that in his appearing. Then Paul talks about his assault. Verse 4 and, and verses 9 through 10, the assault of the Antichrist. Paul describes his character. He is one who opposes. Remember we said Antichrist is what he is. He's opposed to Jesus and the church. He said, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object or worship. This is a man full of pride, a man who is drunk and hungry with power, and he ceases to take control and desires to be worshipped. He exalts himself as Lucifer did, trying to exalt himself above God. So too the Antichrist exalts himself above every so-called God or object to worship. It doesn't matter if it's the one true living God or a false God. He says, I'm better, I'm higher than that. All the religions of the world, I am better and higher than that. I exalt myself. No one else exalts him. He exalts himself. 
So, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He claims to be the one and only God. And we read this and we say, this happens, he takes a seat in the temple. Well, the problem for us is that there is no longer any temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Roman Empire. And remember, Paul was writing, this happened before the destruction of the temple, but Paul was writing to a largely Gentile audience. To them, the temple in Jerusalem really was a non-factor. Jesus had already pronounced his curse on the temple in the Holy Week. And so to them, the temple really meant nothing to them as far as the temple in Jerusalem, but they were familiar with, in the Roman Empire, those who worshipped the emperor. There were, there were temples established, as there was one in Thessalonica, a temple established for the worship of Caesar. And so they see this one, this Antichrist, opposing God, exalting himself, taking a seat of worship, and they could see how one could rise to political power and political authority to the point where they truly believed they had all power. They truly believed that they are God themselves. So this Antichrist would be not only a spiritual adversary, but also a political adversary to God's people. And we go on and read in verse 9 and 10, when he exalts himself, this is what he does. He says, that is the one who's coming. The one who's coming, his, his presence, his appearance, the same word used for when Jesus is coming. There's going to be a coming, a, a, a revelation of this Antichrist. His coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. So Satan is thinking, I'm in, I'm in control of this. I'm in charge of this. We've already said he's not. God truly is. His coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. A lot of supernatural things this man is able to do. But it's false. It's counterfeit. It's not of God. But he uses these false signs and these false wonders to do what? Verse 10, with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. He's come to deceive the lost. He's come to make those who don't truly know God and worship God and love God, He's come to trick them into following Him instead. And He uses these powers to convince them that He is truly God. These supernatural works in order to deceive those, He says, that did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So the assault of the Antichrist is coming to exalt himself, taking all authority upon himself, and then deceiving others, deceiving the lost into following his schemes. Then Paul says in verse 5, there's an awareness of the Antichrist, an awareness. He says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul said, I've already warned you. I've already told you he's coming. Stay aware. Stay alert which is also pretty significant to see that when Paul was with them, he was telling them these things. But as we read the book of Acts, Paul wasn't there very long. He was there only for a short period of time. But in that short period of time that he led people to Christ, he was already instructing them about the end times. That's heavy-duty stuff. Today we say, well, this person's a baby Christian. We... We can't overfeed them yet. Let's just kind of, let's kind of wean them on some small, 
easy to understand, chewable doctrines. And when they get mature, we'll deal with the end time stuff. But the problem happens is that most people don't ever get to study that. Paul says, while I was with you, I was teaching you these things. Studying the end times is important, even for new Christians. Because studying the end times, the the message is, Jesus is coming back, and God wins. We all need to learn and understand and embrace that. An awareness of the Antichrist, but understand God is in control. Then verses 6 and 7, we see the advance of the Antichrist. Paul talks about what restrains him. He says he's on the scene now in some way. He is working, but something is restraining him. Verse 6, and you know what restrains him now. Paul says, I've already told you about this. I've told you in person. You know what restrains him so that in his time he will be revealed. He's not going to be revealed until it's God's plan for him to be revealed. It's not going to happen apart from God's orchestrated plan. He says, you know what restrains him. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's evil already at work. John says there's many antichrists, those opposing Christ. It's already happening. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he is taken out of the way. And so we have before us these two verses, two of the most confusing verses in all the New Testament to interpret. Because in verse 6, Paul says what's holding him back is a what? Then in verse 7, Paul says what's holding him back is a he. And and. Theologians speculate all across the board of what he's talking about, all the way from it's Satan restraining him to the Holy Spirit restraining him, and everywhere in between. But when we see what's taking place here, Paul says all the way back in verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering to him. And Paul is telling him, or telling them, that the Antichrist is already at work, but there's coming a time where we are going to be brought into God's kingdom. But first, something must happen. What was that thing he said must happen? Verse 3, the apostasy comes first. The, the, the leaving of the true church comes first. So it could be argued that what is restraining the work of the Antichrist now is the influence that the church now wields. But in that day when there is a mass exodus from the church, the church loses social influence. And without the social influence of the church, lawlessness reigns. And when lawlessness reigns, the Antichrist is revealed. I believe what Paul is saying here is that in the last day, following the apostasy, there is a decreased influence of the church on society. And in that environment, evil festers, grows to the point that the man of lawlessness is revealed. In advance of the Antichrist, he is now held in check by whatever it is that restrains him. One day that restraint is removed, and his advance goes further. But finally we see in verse 8 the abolition of the Antichrist. He's abolished. Even though he rises to power, he exalts himself, he deceives many with all these false signs and wonders. In the end, he's abolished. 
Verse 8, that the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearing of his coming. It, it has the, the language here of something instant. As soon as Jesus comes back, nothing but the power of his mighty word. To the power of God's word, all things were created. To the power of God's word, lost sinners are converted to him. To the power of God's word, the ultimate enemy of God is destroyed. When Jesus returns, that day that he, that he returns to gather his elect at his coming, Paul says, at his coming and our gathering, when Jesus comes and gathers us, he will destroy the Antichrist. And he doesn't have to lift a finger to do it needs no other help or assistance. He merely comes, speaks destruction. The Antichrist is abolished. The appearance of his coming, the rapture of the saints, the retribution of the lost, and he brings to an end the personification of evil known as the Antichrist. Have you ever been around somebody who's on the phone? You know, they're they got their phone and they're talking and you hear what that person is saying but you don't hear what's being said on the other end and you have to listen to the conversation to try to speculate I wonder what the person on the other end just said sometimes if they're loudmouth you can hear them through the phone but you know say la vie but in a situation like that you can try to piece together the, the context of the conversation just by hearing one side of the conversation. Unfortunately, we find ourselves reading this letter from Paul. We're on one side of the conversation. He says in verse 5, Don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now. So when Paul was in person with them, he told them plainly, but now Paul's using veiled language. And unfortunately, we're on the other side of the phone conversation and we just got to pick up on what Paul's saying. Not what he already said, but what he's saying now. What he's saying now is, again, things look like they're out of control in lawlessness. But it's all part of God's plan to bring Jesus back to destroy the work of Satan. Do not be deceived about the end. And finally, the ultimate goal, do not be destroyed at the end. Do not be destroyed at the end. Paul says, for this reason. For what reason? Look at the end of verse 10. The Antichrist will deceive those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth. The idea is that it was available to them. It was, it was presented to them. Here's the truth. But they didn't love it. They didn't receive the love of the truth. The thing is, the love of the truth is so as to be saved. The only way to be saved is to receive the love of the truth. And the Antichrist comes to deceive those who haven't done that. And we might say, wow, it looks like the Antichrist won. Paul says, for this reason, God will send upon them those who have not received, those who have rejected the gospel. God will send upon them a deluding influence 
God will muddy the waters for them. God will confuse their minds. And we say, why would God do that? So that they will believe what is false. The reason the Antichrist has so much success in the last days is because God allows it. God ordains it. Because those have rejected the love of the truth so as to be saved. At Christ's return, the doom for some is sure because of, first of all, a mental rejection of truth. A mental rejection. They do not receive it. They do not believe it. They don't even want to think of it as being possible. Therefore, God sends a deluding influence. God hands them over. Okay, you want sin so bad? Go for it. It's not the only place in Scripture we read that. Romans chapter 1. Paul says repeatedly, those who suppress the knowledge of the truth, God hands them over. Here's the truth. You all refuse the truth. Here, live your, wife, live your life the way you choose. Suffer the consequences. God hands them over. In the last days, a deluding influence, God hands them over to their own sinful thoughts, their own mental rejection of truth, so that they all may be judged, condemned, who do not believe the truth. Verse 12. Not believing the truth, not obeying the gospel, Back in chapter 1, verse 8. Remember when Jesus returns, that's what's going to happen. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel. When he returns, that's going to happen. And when he returns to gather us, there's going to be those finding themselves on the outside because they did not believe the truth. They did not literally have faith in the truth. They didn't trust in the message of God that would save them. God says, here's what you need to do to be saved. And they said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And God says, have at you. They will believe what is false. But the reason for this mental rejection is found in the moral rebellion against the truth. Verse 12, that's the root of the problem. He says in verse 12, he says, but they took pleasure in wickedness. They didn't want to believe. Why? Because they loved sin. They love sin. They love lawlessness. And when the man of lawlessness shows up, that's exactly what they want. The root of the problem is the human heart. The human heart loves sin. The human heart loves wickedness and selfishness and self-righteousness and exaltation, self-exaltation, just like the Antichrist. It's the problem of the human condition is the human heart. So taking what Paul has said here, we can work backwards in this and say it starts with the sinful heart of man who loves wickedness. He loves sin. Because he loves sin, it affects the way he thinks. Because he loves sin, he doesn't believe the gospel. Because he doesn't believe the gospel, one day there's going to be an apostasy, a leaving of the faith. And after that apostasy, Paul says, it's going to come a deception from the Antichrist. And these lost people are going to buy into it because God gives them a sense of delusion so that they will believe the lie. And in the end, it's destruction. They suffer the same fate as the evil one. And we read this and we're like, wow, that is doom and gloom. That is hellfire and brimstone. That is, that is damnation. That is all these things that we don't want to hear but it's the truth. But the good news is it doesn't have to be that for you. 
It doesn't have to end that way for you. That God has given us this truth so that we can love it and be saved. That truth is that, yes, you have sinned against God. You deserve hell for your sin. But God loves you so much He sent His Son to die for your sin. You don't need to be condemned. Jesus was condemned for you. He took your punishment so that you could be forgiven. So that you could be made holy and right in the eyes of a a holy God. Destruction does not have to be the end for you. Salvation and glory and heaven and joy, all these things are available to you if you will receive the love of the truth. I wish I could receive it for you. I'd receive it for all y'all right now. Loving the truth right here, all of you saved. Boom. I wish I could do that, but I can't. You've got to do that. Your parents can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. No one can do that but you. You've got to receive the love of the truth. You've got to receive this this knowledge, this message that Jesus died for you and rose again. You've got to receive that. You've got to believe and trust in that. If you do that, God will transform you from the inside out and you'll be saved. That's the good news. But the good news is only good news if you understand the bad news. The bad news is if you do not receive the love of the truth to be saved, you will be condemned. I pray none of us find ourselves on that end of the equation. Instead, God wants you and I as believers to find encouragement in in His revealed plan for the end times. See, God's faithful to His promise. This week was the first week of school for Clark County. Back to school. In our household, it was an even more eventful week. It was was our youngest son, Jaden. His first day of kindergarten was Thursday. And he was a little bit uncertain about this whole school thing, you see. He'd seen Bobby and Sissy dropped off at school for the last few years, and he's got to go home. But now he was going to be one of those ones left at school too, dropped off at school. little uncertain about all of that, not knowing what to expect. Didn't want to quite let go of the hand. Had a pretty good grip on my hand that morning. But you see what we did? We reassured him. As we dropped him off, we said, okay, here, here's how your day is going to go. You're going to go in, you're going to meet some new friends, and you're going to get to learn uh, some really cool stuff. You're going to get to go to lunch and sit with your friends and eat lunch, and you're going to have a nap time later. You're going to get to sleep in a little bit, and you're going to wake up from that. You're going to get to play on the playground some, and then next thing you know, mommy and daddy will show up. We'll pick you up. So we were reassuring him by pointing out some general steps along the way. This is how, this is how your day is going to progress. And at the end, we're going to be there. At the end, we're coming. At the end, you can be encouraged because you can focus on the end and say, even if I'm having a bad day, mommy and daddy's coming for me. And this isn't permanent because they're coming for me and they're going to take me home. As Paul was writing to that church, they were confused and they were, were worried, they were bothered, they were harassed by false doctrine. And Paul says, Jesus is coming. And here's some steps. There's going to be an apostasy. There's going to be an antichrist. There's going to be a deception that leads to destruction. But in the end, Jesus is coming back for you. 
And what you're going through right now, it's not permanent. Jesus is coming back for you. He's going to take you home. So as we follow this plan of God, this revealed plan for the end times, while we might not be able to completely decipher all of the small details, we see enough of the big snapshot, the overhead view. We see enough of that, I believe, to be encouraged. And that's what Paul was getting at here in this letter. Jesus is coming back. Be encouraged by that. So you and I must stand firm on Scripture not speculation. Stand firm on Scripture, God's revealed truth. A lot of fictional works out there, books and movies about the end of the world. Don't get bogged down and caught up in all that. Go to the Word. Let the Word of God, let the Scripture give you the knowledge and the encouragement when it comes to understanding the end times. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice 